Take your Bibles and let's go to John chapter 1. We're uh, starting the seventh message on the Gospel of John today. We are only walking through the first 18 verses over these uh, first couple of weeks. And some of you have asked with a little look of concern in your face as to how long we're going to be in this Gospel. Let me reassure you, uh, we will complete our study by 2030. It's going to be just fine, so we're all set. So. Uh, we will complete it in 2020. I've timed it such that we're going to land on Easter uh, with the text in John, and then uh, we'll have another number of little series that will happen throughout the course of the next year and a half or so. And we're, we're walking slowly through this uh, particular passage for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is that I want you to see that it's not just that the Bible in total or that individual verses have meaning, but literally words matter. Like phrases matter, and there's a, there's a depth and a richness that we can dig into when we just slow down a little bit. I don't know about you, but my life and our culture and technology and everything else creates this almost frantic pace. And I want you just to realize that when you read the Bible slow, when you read the Bible, you should read it slowly. You should read it carefully to savor it. Nicholas Carr in his book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, says this, what the net seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. He writes, I once was a scuba diver in the sea of words now I zip along the surface like a guy in a jet ski. So I want you to realize that in order to really understand what the Bible is saying, you have to slow down. I want to remind you that Sunday mornings are a moment for you just to slow down. So I don't know where God finds you this morning or kind of what your orientation is as you've come to worship, but maybe some of you just need to literally just kind of take a breath. Here I am in front of the Bible, the inspired text of God's word, and I need to hear from the Lord. I just want to bathe myself in what the scriptures mean. The text that we're in today, verses 15 and 16 of John chapter 1, tell us more about Jesus. John's aim throughout the whole book is singularly one word, it's the word believe. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're here by someone's invitation or maybe you're just curious or you've heard that the Gospel of John is a good place to start, I'm so glad that you're spending time just to hear what the Bible says. And, and what you need to know is that the end game of this book, the end game of the Gospel of John is for you to believe. But to believe what? According to John, it is that you would believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, John tells us, that you would have life in his name. Last week, from chapter 1 and verse 14, we saw the portrayal of Jesus as the word in the flesh, Jesus tabernacled, he, he moved into the neighborhood, and the key to chapter one and verse 14 is that John said, I saw his glory. When John saw him heal someone, he saw the glory of God 
When he taught, he, he heard the words and they, they landed on his soul and he, he saw glory. And then when John describes what that glory is, he says that glory was full of grace and truth. He was pulling from the Old Testament about what God was like, full of loving kindness and steadfastness, full of mercy and yet full of truthfulness. And John says, when I saw what Jesus did, when I heard what he said, when I saw the way that he conducted himself, there was glory there, and that glory was full of grace and truth. And last week I tried to help you understand that by implication, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you're being transformed from one degree of that glory into another, that means that over the course of your lifetime, grace and truth becomes a greater part of your life right now than what it was a week ago and five years from now, grace and truth will even be more significantly true about your life. So here's my question. In the last week, did you have an opportunity to apply grace and truth? Did you? You know you can say yes. Like, yes. All right. That's okay. You're allowed to talk in the service. So I had a wonderful woman, Veda, who said yes. In the whole first service, she like unlocked the door for people to talk in the service. It was great. So thank you, Sister Veda, for unlocking the door. So Grace and truth is how a follower of Jesus is supposed to live because that's the essence of the glory of what John saw as it relates to Jesus. But here's the thing. When John thinks of the fullness of Jesus, when, when John thinks of him being full of grace and truth, the good news is there's more yet to learn. Like John isn't done. There's more of this fullness that he needs to unpack. And the beautiful thing that I want you to understand is there's not just more to understand about Jesus in this text, there's more to understand about Jesus in every text, and there's more about Jesus to understand for all of eternity. So you think about this. For all of eternity, we will never, ever stop exhausting what there is to learn of about a holy and righteous God. This text helps us to see more. There's three aspects about Jesus that relate to more. Number one, there's more affirmation of deity. Or let me put it this way. John wants to affirm again that Jesus really is God. He didn't appear as God, he didn't just act like God, didn't look like God. John wants you to know, no, 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 no. Jesus is God. In fact, John would tell you that in order to be a Christian, you must believe that he is God. We've already heard about this in chapter one. Verse one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning with God. John wants to make it really clear, this word who is Jesus is God. Chapter one and verse 14, the word becomes flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So John keeps coming at this, that he's God, he's God, he's God, he's God. And the reason is, is because this idea of Jesus being God, not just looking like God, not just acting like God, is central to what Christianity is. It's the linchpin that holds all of redemption together. The reason is, is that if Jesus is not fully God, 
then he has no right to make atonement for your sins. He'd have to make atonement for his sins. But if he's sinless, and if he really is God, then he can make a sacrifice that could be applied to your account. So the fact that Jesus is God is vitally essential in order for your sins to be forgiven. What's more, he has to be the son of God in order to be the mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. He needs to stand in the gap between you and a righteous God, and the only one who could stand in that gap is somebody who understands your humanity and who also is deeply connected to divinity, and Jesus is the only one who stands. That's why the Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, the person, the man, Jesus Christ. So this idea of Jesus being God is so important that John, the apostle, now uses the testimony of John the Baptist. Look at verse 15. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now the testimony of John the Baptist becomes very important. Interestingly enough, all four gospels record some aspect of John the Baptist's role and his testimony. All four of the gospels. We've already heard about John the Baptist in chapter one, verses six through eight. And again, we'll pick it up next year when we look at verses 19 through 28 as it relates to the testimony of John the Baptist. So John the Apostle uses the testimony of John the Baptist in order to get to this point in verse 34. John says, and I have seen, this is John the Baptist, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Apostle wants you to know that John the Baptist says this really is the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In your Bible, there may be a parenthetical thought the reason that the translators put it in parenthesis is it doesn't necessarily seem to flow very well between verses 14 and 16. And while it's true that the thought sort of interrupts the flow, I think what John is doing, he's doing here on purpose because he wants to make another point about the deity of Jesus. He says, quote, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So what's going on here? Well, John the Baptist was born first. John the Baptist started his ministry first. And in the, ancient Irni, in the ancient Near East, in much similar way within our own day, if you're older, people tend to give an older person more credibility, more props, more authority than a younger person because of life experience. For instance, if you think about the elders who were at the gate, those elders were not just rulers, they were older. Maybe growing up as a child, you heard your mom or your grandma say, obey your elders. <laughs> or maybe your older brother or sister tried to pull that card on you every once in a while, right? Hey, I'm older, you know? I know how to do a jump shot. Let me tell you, right? If you're a younger brother or sister, you know, that's hard to stomach. The point is that since John the Baptist's ministry was before the ministry of Jesus, and since he was older, it would be fairly normal to assume that John the Baptist was greater. 
But John the Baptist makes it very clear that his role is to prepare the way for Jesus and to connect the existence of Jesus as that which was prior to John's existence, which is why he says, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John was born first. What he's saying is, no, 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 Christ existed before I even existed. He's affirming the pre-existence of Jesus, that indeed Jesus really was the Son of God, that he was God in the flesh, that indeed was the God-man who hung on the cross, that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that indeed he was the one mediator between God and man, that he was the one who was worthy to pay for atonement because he alone was God in the flesh. That's John's point. You must believe that Jesus is God. This idea is so critical that the early church had to wrestle with the deity of Christ. There was a a movement in the 300s sweeping the church called Arianism, which taught that Jesus wasn't really fully God, he looked like God, or he was similar to God, but he wasn't God. Things got to be so challenging and so difficult that a church council was gathered in 321, and they met from May to August of that year in order to draw a clear and definitive line that Jesus was not just different than God, he wasn't similar in substance than God, that Jesus was the same substance, that Father, Son, and Spirit occupy a place together in the Holy Trinity. They are of the same essence, the same substance, that Jesus is very God, a very God, begotten but not made. And in 321, the church settled the issue with what's called the Nicene Creed. Now, some of you come from more of an intellectual background. Every once in a while, you wonder while we're reading the Bible or something, you're like, I don't know. How do we know like, what we believe is like historical? Like, it's 2018, and well, what I'm about to have you read is a creed written in the 300s, just 300 years after the death of Christ, that affirms the deity of Jesus. I want you to read this out loud together with me. I believe in one God. <clears throat> the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end." Amen, right? The Apostle John and the early church knew that the deity of Jesus was central to Christianity. Friends, Jesus is not just another prophet, as Muslims would tell you. He's not a holy man, just a holy man, as Hindus would tell you. And when the knock comes at your door, 
He's not just the first of creation, as the Jehovah's Witness would tell you. Jesus is and must be and always has been and will forever be God. And the reason that this is so incredibly important is that he had to be perfect in order to make us perfect, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. In order for him to be that mediator between God and man, he must be the God-man. And as a result, John says in his letter in 1 John chapter 2 that no one who denies the Son has the Father. Why? Because to see the Son is to see the Father. To hear the Son is to hear the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So the deity of Jesus Christ is that important, and as a result, it's worth another affirmation. Two. The second more is that there are more implications of his fullness. It says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So in verse 14, we heard that when John saw the glory of Jesus, when he saw what he did, when he heard what he taught, when he watched the way he conducted himself, he saw glory, and he described that glory this way, that that glory was full of grace and truth. And yet in this text, we find that there's another aspect of this fullness of Jesus, that the fullness of Jesus, listen to me, the fullness of Jesus is not just what he's like, but the fullness of Jesus is also the beauty of what he gives. So fullness doesn't just describe him, fullness describes the means and the source and the substance from which all grace flows. So that means that the grace that you receive if you're a follower of Jesus comes from the inexhaustible supply of the fullness of all that Jesus is. And friends, there is no greater fullness that could possibly be in all of the created order, in all of the universe, or that you could ever imagine than the fullness of Jesus as the fullness of God in all of what he is for us. It's remarkable. So which is why... John says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So track the source of every grace that's given to a Christian, and the fountainhead of that grace is Christ. If you have a Bible, go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. Colossians 1.19. The fullness of Jesus becomes the means by which every Christian receives grace. That's the point. Listen to it as seen in Colossians 1.19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Notice, in him, in him, in him, in him, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And that is beautiful, but it's not here in this text just for you to be able to go, wow, look at him. It's there for that, but it is so that the fullness of Jesus becomes a conduit for what comes next. 
and through him, here it comes, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, if you were to look underneath redemption and underneath this promise and underneath this hope that one day God in his infinite wisdom is gonna help me to be preserved all the way to the end, what is the basis of that hope? It can't be your belief. Your belief is part of it. But how do you know that at the very end of your life, like just seconds before you die, you don't deny Jesus? How do you know you're going to be preserved all the way to the end? Or maybe you have some inordinate pressure that's coming on your life right now, and you're looking at this brewing storm, and you're thinking, I don't know how I'm going to be able to make it, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to walk another day or another week or another month, let alone a couple years in this trial or difficulty. What is underneath the reality of a Christian's life. This text tells us what is underneath the reality of being a follower of Jesus is not your belief, it's not your confidence, it's not what you understand. At the end of the day, the ground of your support is the fullness of all of who and what Jesus is. It's his fullness that creates the means by which reconciliation and redemption happens. It's the fullness of Jesus. Here's how Spurgeon said it. There is a fullness of every, of blessing, there's a fullness of blessing of every sort and shape and a fullness of grace to pardon, of grace to regenerate, of grace to sanctify, of grace to preserve, of grace to perfect. There's a fullness at all times, a fullness of comfort and affliction, a fullness of guidance and prosperity, a fullness of every divine attribute, of wisdom, of power, of love, a fullness which is, were impossible to survey, much less to explore. Oh, he says, what a fullness must this be of which we all receive. Fullness indeed must there be when the stream is always flowing and yet the well springs up as free, as rich, and as full as ever. Come, believer, and get thy needs supplied. Ask largely, and thou shalt receive largely, for this fullness is inexhaustible and treasured up where all the needy may reach it, even in Jesus, who is God with us. Over and over, the Bible keeps pointing you, it keeps pointing me, back to the person and work of Jesus. That's why our mission as a church is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. Success in the church looks like you looking like Jesus. If I've done my job well, then when we're standing together before Jesus, your engagement in this church, your membership of this body should directly relate to your likeness of Jesus in that moment and your engagement in this body. If you don't look like Jesus or if our elders haven't helped you to look like Jesus, then we have failed. If you know how to parse Greek words and do systematic theology, you know historical cultural background, you're engaged in, in all kinds of uh, activities in the community, do all sorts of things, but if you don't look like Jesus, it doesn't matter. The goal is for you to look more and more like the person and work of Christ. Let me prove this to you. Go over to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at verse 11. Ephesians 4 and verse 11. Again, what I'm trying to argue here is that the fullness of Jesus matters as it relates to receiving grace upon grace. 
Look at Ephesians 4, verse 11, talking about here the role of the church. It says, and he, and he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, this is Ephesians 4, 11, shepherds and teachers, for what purpose? Here it is, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. For what end? until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, here it comes, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There it is again. So glorious. At the end game is that Jesus is so full of grace and truth and his people are so full of grace and truth that over and over and over the Bible calls us that we look more and more like Jesus, that he and his fullness is my supply. He is your more that you need. And when you struggle to believe that and when you wonder how in the world is it possible that I'm able to, to be able to make it to the end, the Bible points you back, back, back to the fullness of Jesus. Your confidence is not in what you know. Your confidence is not in your experience. Your confidence is not in your background. Your confidence isn't in terms of what you've heard. Your confidence solely is in this one thing. All I know is that Jesus was God in the flesh and in his fullness, he has an ever supply of grace ready and available for everything I face. So think of Jesus. Think of Jesus like the ocean. And think of yourself like a little child standing, beholding the ocean. And imagine a child saying to their mom and dad, I want to get wet. And the mom and dad saying, go jump in the ocean then. The child jumps in the ocean and they're all wet. And I love being wet. And they get out and they say to the mom and dad, oh, I'm so nervous. What if the ocean runs out of wetness? Child jumps back in the ocean. More wetness. Gets out and says, well, what if, what if the water runs out? What if the wetness isn't there anymore and the beautiful reality of the ocean is the ocean and its wetness are absolutely tied together and the expansiveness of the ocean is comparable to the expansiveness of the grace of Christ. And we are to go and run into the ocean of Christ's grace of which the supply is infinitely broad as much as wetness is to the ocean, so grace is to the person and work of Christ. So the invitation is this then. Why don't you go swimming in the ocean of Christ's grace? You may be here today so weary, worn out, troubled, and it may be that this very service is part of the way in which God is encouraging you to go back into the ocean of the grace of Christ. And can I assure you, but he never will ever, ever run out of grace. The final more is there's more grace. There's not only more fullness, but there's more grace. Go back to John chapter one. Now, in full disclosure, there were some months ago that I chose to just land on this particular text. And I, and I thought the passage was going a particular direction. 
like it was grace stacked upon grace. <laughs> and that's true by implication, but that's not exactly what this text means. I had a very unsettling feeling when I was reading through a commentary, and one of my favorite commentaries is by D.A. Carson. And he said that some people think that this text means that this is grace stacked upon grace. However, and I was like, oh no. <laughs> oh no. Because <laughs> I flipped a couple pages and there's like six pages, four, four pages, six, seven paragraphs of why that wasn't the correct perspective. Let me help you understand what's going on in this text. If you have an ESV Bible, you'll see a footnote and the passage reads, we've all received grace upon grace. But if you look at the footnote, it says, we have all received from his fullness, from his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace. Well, that's different. Or the 1984 NIV says, we have all received one blessing after another. But then in 2011, they changed the translation and said, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Now you see the problem that gave me a bit of exegetical heartburn this week. <laughs> King James says, we have all received grace for grace. I show this at this level of detail for you because if, if you want to study the Bible, one of the best ways to do it, even though you don't know original language, is just get four good translations out and you put those together, you'll start to get the sense of what's going on in the text. That's one of the ways you can study the Bible. What's happening here is this. It's connected to verse 17. While I wasn't wrong by implication that it's grace stacked upon grace, what Paul is saying, and we'll look at this next week, that for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the grace that he's referring to, the grace upon grace, the second grace is the grace of Jesus. The first grace is the grace of the law. Now it's unusual that John would talk about the law in this way, and I think he does it on purpose because he's trying to connect this grace and truth concept along with the law that we'll talk about more next week. You have to come back to understand fully what that means. But what in effect John is saying is this, God gave you a gift in the law to show you what you were like. God gave you a gift to reveal to you how God is holy and you're not. That's a gift that God told you that. It's a grace gift. And then he says, but through Christ, we have all received not only this grace of the law, but the grace of that, listen, which fulfilled the law. So through Christ, it's grace upon grace that Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the law. He fulfilled all the requirements of perfect obedience that Jesus fully obeyed. He did so, so that when you stand before God, and God opens up your account, he doesn't see your sin, he only sees Christ's righteousness. That's grace upon grace. Instead of seeing your rebellion, he sees Christ's righteousness. Instead of seeing your wickedness, he sees Christ's worthiness. So that when you stand before him and you have a robe of righteousness on, if you were to look in the tag, it would say belongs to Jesus, but you just get to wear it. The reason that's important is because this becomes the foundation for understanding the way in which Jesus deals with us and the riches that he provides to us. That if Jesus is able to deal with the most fundamental problem in your life, namely your wayward, wicked heart, unable to save itself, incapable of washing away your own sin. If Jesus can add grace to that, then surely he can add grace to your addiction. Yeah. 
Surely he can take you out of the bondage that you feel because of your worry and anxiety. You think your job is a big deal? It is a big deal, brother, but you have no idea what Jesus can do if you can just trust him. Your wayward children, God knows where they are. He's a master at taking wayward people and bringing them back home. And you would say, where do you get that? I get that from John 1, 7, 16. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus is a master at taking things that are broken and seemingly impossible and are impossible from a human standpoint and saying, watch, I'm going to deliver my people from this. It looked pretty dark from Good Friday in the days that followed until Easter Sunday came. The grace of Christ's death was matched by the grace of his resurrection. And it's out of the fullness of Jesus that we receive everything. So therefore, you can trust him. You can trust him that when he asks you to be humble and you think, if I'm humble, they're gonna take advantage of me, you can believe, no, 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 God gives grace to the humble and you bank your life on that. And why do you bank your life on that? Because he's always been true to his grace in your life. Or when you take your financial resources and you give in order to verify, I don't trust in money, watch, I'm gonna give this money away. You do this in order to verify that I trust in Christ's bounty, not the bounty of an American currency. I trust in my security in Christ, not the security that money tends to bring me. When worry begins to hit the shore of your heart, that you trust in Jesus' ability to help you, not in your ability to help you. And you need to know that Jesus' posture towards you is if you're his child, he is ready and willing to give you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. His heart for you is like a father or a mother for a child. All you need to do is begin asking him for more. Lord, would you give me more grace? Would you give me more grace? You've tasted the sweetness of his grace? Ask him for more grace. You've tasted the sweetness of the eclipsing grace of Christ over the law? Then ask him for more grace. I think I've used this illustration before. It just comes to mind. It resonates with my heart. When our son Jeremiah was a little baby, couldn't even talk, we taught our kids different little sign language things, and one of them we taught with them was the concept of more. So when he wanted more sweet potatoes, he didn't have to go, eh, 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 eh. He could just go this, and we're like, ah, this works. So here's more sweet potatoes or broccoli or something like that. One evening, Sarah and I were laying on our bed. We were kissing on his cheeks, and he was loving it, it was cooling and everything else. And we were just having one of those fun mom and dad child moments, kissing on him. We love you, we love you, we love you. His face was lighting up. We sat up, he looked at us, and he said, Mama, Dada, more. Yeah, right? I mean, seriously, right? <laughs> In that moment, what do we do? Nah, that's enough. That's enough. No, it's a little, little too much. A little too much kumbaya there. No. What do we do? His request for more, we drew right back in. We gave him more. Why? Because everything within our heart said yes. Why? Because we love him. Jesus is the yes in terms of your relationship because he bought you to make his, his, chi you, his child so that when you call out to him and say, God, I need more grace. I need more grace today. His his. His posture towards you is not like a banker. His posture isn't like a loan underwriter. 
Here, better pay this back. His posture to you is a parent who says, I welcomed you into my family. I paid the ultimate price. So here's more grace. From his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, no doubt there are many here who need your grace today, and so we pray that you would pour out mercy upon them. We pray that we'd be a people who rely on this grace, who cherish it and drink deeply. Give us strength to believe right now that everything we need we have in you. God, I can't imagine the amount of pain, turmoil, difficulty, confusion that exists within this room and people who will hear this message. And I just pray that you, Jesus, would help them to see the fullness of who you are so that they today might have hope. And thank you that our hope doesn't rest on our ability to hope, but on your fullness as God. Mm. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.